Now, that's an example. So I know clearly normal abnormal. But then if you're normal, he's an ex- so if it's abnormal, then suddenly I have, you know, overgrowth pathogens and, and stuff like that. If it's normal, we also know that bile acids to some degree can be a little bit toxic, right? So it's not, it's, it's again, this balance between health and disease, right? So once you know it's normal, then you could potentially, you know, manipulate bile acids a little bit better. So you, you couldn't change them drastically. But there are some bacteria, for example, that c- can convert the bile acid in some of the isooxo, this new bile acid forms now. And then suddenly maybe you replace your, your cigarette bile acids with less toxic ones. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. 84 million times a day, pets eat meals with ingredients from Trow Nutrition. We bring together the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending to unleash possibilities for pet food brands. Premixes are just the start. Turn to Trow for higher inclusion ingredients too, like proteins and carbohydrates, and highly sensitive ingredients like probiotics. With our palatants and base blends, you can feel confident about what comes in our bags and goes in yours. Learn more at TrowNutritionPets.com. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, and we have the great uh, privilege today, and and really I'm excited about this opportunity to interview Dr. John Sokodowski. We've talked a number of times, and we get to talk again, and... um, Dr. Sokodowski is a expert in the microbiota of pets. And I don't know if you, you know, but my perspective is that this is one of the areas where, where much can be learned and, and where this is a very fertile ground for, for new information and new you know, paradigms of nutrition. And so I'm really excited about having this conversation. I wonder if you could tell us, tell me a little bit about your background, how you got there to Texas and, and um, you know, what you find uh, today. Yeah. So, so my name is Jan Sogodolski and I did my veterinary school in Vienna, Austria. And I was there for a few years in private practice. And then I always want to do some research experience. And so the opportunity arose many years ago, almost like more than 20 years now, to come to Texas A&M and to the GI laboratory. So it's a special lab that really focuses on understanding GI disease and mostly focusing on developing biomarkers. So it's kind of a diagnostic lab, but also like an academic research lab. And I started to work a little bit on, you know, developing diagnostic markers for GI disease. And then I liked it so much, so I stayed on, and one of my PhD projects started to be back then to better describe GI diseases related to dysbiosis. So back then, the disease was called small intestinal overgrowth, 
And the goal was to kind of better identify it. And when I started, it was still culture time. So my first year of my PhD, I still did molecular culture. And then the very first papers came out showing with molecular tools that, oops, there's so many other bacteria there that back then we never even knew about, right? And so I kind of switched my PhD in being descriptive, trying to develop those tools and better describe who is there, um, and mostly in the context of GI disease, I think. So that's why the perspective that I usually come from is the perspective on GI disease. And over the last 20 years, we know very, very well that diet, nutrition is one of the best, you know, uh, medications, right, for especially for chronic and acute GI disease. And the interplay between the GI tract, you know, absorption, nutrients, the microbiome is quite complex, but it allows us to really see from both sides, pure nutrition, healthy animals, all the way to the perspective once you truly have already abnormal GI tract function, and then how to treat this cut and so So that's my background. Well, it's a fascinating one. What do you think? I mean, I, I'd sort of forgotten you actually started before the molecular tools hit. That that window that opened up with the molecular tools, what what was your thought at the time? I mean, uh, for me, it was just fantastic, but you were right there. What, what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking that was very exciting. And, you know, um, and I thought... It was actually challenging because nobody could help it right away. So all of those, you know, tools were very, very new. And actually, I studied before molecular. I studied with those big gels. I don't know, you know, maybe some people don't even know any, about them anymore. Those the nature, the nature green gel electrophoresis. So it took me six months to, to have my first banding pattern and so on. And I mean, it was very beginning, as I understand. But it helped me a lot to also focus on on the details, but also discover that often you have to really keep in mind the big picture. And I think that is nice because it really helped me to frame right that small things when you see them. So we started with clone libraries. I went through every sequence manually and like checked every single little peak if it's correct. In the end, later when we started doing sequencing, I discovered, you know, it doesn't really change that much the overall picture, if that makes sense. And I think that is really what I try to probably emphasize also today is that we need to look at both the big picture and the small picture. And then especially also looking at, you know, shifts that happen in health, but also shifts that happen in GI disease. So this is the perspective that really drove me. And I think... Um, you know, in the beginning, we were very simple thinking, right? We thought we, once we identify, you know, I, I can even tell you, my PhD was to prove how well antibiotics do <laughs> because, you know, we see this clinical response to antibiotics. So the ultimate goal was, well, let's see how antibiotics shift the microbiome, and then we can maybe recreate the same shifts with nutrition, with probiotics, and so on. And, you know, then I saw, oops, actually, antibiotics do everything worse objectively, but they stopped diarrhea, right? <laughs> so it was kind of the, you know, this whole frame, how do you combine all of this that in the end you see shifts that don't always correlate with the picture, right? But so it, it was kind of starting everything new, also get, going against paradigm shifts and so on, and, you know, observing data. And for me, what I always say to my students nowadays, the data never lies. The data is the data. But our interpretation of the data truly changed and it changed really drastically in the last 20 years. Hmm. 
Yeah, I was I was preparing to talk the other day, and I was thinking, you know, I want to tell the 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 audience that that the data are still right, but at least ten percent of what I'm telling you is wrong. I just don't know what ten percent is. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, you've you've traveled that. Let's talk a little bit about that health versus illness in the microbiota. You know, one of the things that just strikes me is how diverse health can look, and yet lots of times illness, and you see that dysbiosis, and you go, whoa, I understand that pet's sick, but, but what what do you see when you look at it from your side and the depth you understand? Yeah, so, so and again, that's the beauty of the long journey, right? You see different things, and so, uh, um, so we always came from the disease side, okay? That was always our goal, and so that's why for me, um, we always saw those differences between health and disease, but they were overlapping, correct? So there was this, you know, clearly there were some dogs and cats that were clearly far away and other ones were overlapping, right? But when you start a new field, you kind of always, you know, describe it statistically, right? So you always say, you know, there, was a, there were differences between healthy and, and dogs with chronic GI disease, right? And then you discover, wow, after a while, everybody repeats that, right? <laughs> and everybody thinks there are actually differences chronic but actually with time you discover that it's not true right so that's some clearly abnormal and some have a complete normal microbiome because it clusters always with health right and so like you know you, you come from the medical field too ultimately what we need to do is we need to put this all in a perspective of reference intervals what is you know the huge range of normal you know if that makes sense because if you always describe something in a small population healthy versus diseased you're always going to find statistical differences the question is are they meaningful for every single animal or not? And so we discovered dysbiosis now is that dysbiosis is actually almost the microbiome is, and that's what really I want to highlight too, is the microbiome is not independent of the rest of the GI tract. I think that's a little bit a challenge that's very often we get lost in the microbiome, but for, forget that it's really part of the GI tract and it responds what also happens in the GI tract independent of nutrition. So the way I, I describe it very simple is if you look outside, you know, you see your beautiful ecosystem, right? You see the trees, all the different variety and so on, but it's still going to depend very much on the soil, right? Other, other components, not just the nutrients that come to it. And so the concept of we, what we're developing over time now is that actually dysbiosis is the reaction in most cases. And I, I need to, medically, you need to dis, distinguish them a little bit. But in the end, there's probably three or four different areas. We can clearly see shift in the microbiome, but it really depends what was the cause of the shift. Antibiotic is like burning down the forest, right? But the soil is still actually very fertile. So usually either it can grow back, or if you know now to do the perfect modulation, the most fecal transplantation, we can bring the microbiome back, right? But then you see this biosis coming when it's chronic inflammation. The inflammation is a process that has been there for many months to years. And when you look at the histology of the GI tract, you see, you know, Villus atrophy, the transporters are decreasing and things like that. So that's the function of the job is completely different, right? And that's what we're discovering now. It's a chronic process. You know, it's also something that changes over time. And that cause is going to be, again, shifts in the microbiome through various mechanisms, you know, low-level malabsorption on the mucosal level. You have a little nutrients that get, get, get absorbed. You have a little bit of inflammation, oxygen. It's many different things that happen, you know. And this dysbiosis pattern is usually not reversible anymore, right, if that makes sense. Could you say that again? Do you say usually not reversible? It's not reversible because it is, again, the response to the chronic changes in on the mucosal level in the GI tract. 
So if you if you went in and changed that inflammation, say for example, you cured the disease and and the, those villas start growing back, do you still have the dysbiosis that sort of No, then 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 actually it should reverse back. Like and, ah, and it should reverse yeah. back. Yeah. Exactly. But what I'm thinking is what I'm just trying to say is when you look at GI disease, right, and we take biopsies and you know at, at the moment everybody focuses on the inflammatory component. But the inflammation, there's a reason why inflammation is there, right? It's this low level inflammation that over time de- leads to remodeling of the mucosal structure, right? That makes sense. So you have shortening of villa and so on. And that's exactly where you hit the spot. If you detect it early, it may be reversible or maybe like, you know, enough regeneration that the function keeps, you know, stable, right? But if you pass the points, then it's not going to be. Then it's a management tool, right? So we're discovering now that you have, like in kidney disease, you're an expert in kidney disease, right? In the gut, is the same principle. You know, if you don't detect it early, you know, those changes are subclinical for a long, long, long time. And once it becomes clinical, usually that's where the system broke, if that makes sense, right? The system... Well, it makes lots of sense, yeah. Exactly. So I think we need to also really, really discover... A staging system in the in the GI tract, exactly like for kidney disease, right? And that's something we don't have, right? Diarrhea stops, everybody thinks, wow, everything is normal. But now we're discovering it's not. And that's why we dis- dis- discovered that dysbiosis is, again, it's both. It's a marker, it's a sentinel, right? You know, if, if, the, if the gut environment changes, you know, then you, you kill things off. Um, but obviously, once it becomes abnormal, then it contributes again, right? It's not one or the other. You know, it's, it's a complex system, like our ecosystem. And that is, I think, the biggest probably, um, I think, the biggest one-way exciting area that we discovered the last few years, you know, because it, it allows us a different approach, right? It's not like this big black box anymore, but it allows us to distinguish, you know, is the gut functioning properly, then we probably have a huge range of a normal microbiome, right? That means there I can modulate it easier. But but think about it, once the GI tube is not functioning anymore, and it disposes, that's almost like the trees of data, that's what I say, Right. And then it's a very different kind of modulation, right? If I can modulate at all, right? So that's kind of the, the big areas that it's important to always put the microbiome back into the environment. Sure. Well, it's fascinating. And it's really such a broad view, isn't it? It's that encompassing the microbiota in the environment that it's living in, in the pet. And, and so I, I think I have suffered, you know, when I first started, I ignored the microbiome. You know, it's like, who cares? It's going through the gut. I don't why. I can't measure it. You know, I didn't have your skills even in the culture days and we'd give up fast. And, and then, and then sort of came all available and you sort of get this idea that, wow, if I just could control the microbiome, I, microbiome, I could control it all. But what you're telling me is, oh, no, no, it's more complex than that, it, and I, I, I find that it's very complex. Yeah, but it's also, it's also like, you know, we forget how many bacteria are present, right? Talk so about that a minute. Feeling, Just right? help, help us understand. I like when I, when I started, maybe we, we had 20 or 30, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, now you might have that many phyla, right? So hey, tell me what you've got. I, I, I want to know. Okay, so I think the, the first question is the sheer number of bacteria, right? And I think a lot of clinicians for sure, and also probably, you know, when we always do the same thing, we don't get the feeling is, but, well, nobody really knows the right number. You know, some people say it's 100 trillion, somebody say it's 1 trillion, you know, or 10 trillion. But if, you're, if you just think about the number of trillions, right? What is actually a trillion? I don't think we have the feeling what that means. And as this really nice example is that if you have 1 million seconds, right? 
one million seconds, how many days are those? Do you know by no, any chance? No, I have to do the calculation. Tell me. I, 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 no, it's, ele- it's, it's, ele- it's, ele- it's 11 days. calculator. Yeah. <laughs> it's 11 days, okay? It's 11 okay. days. So when you go to one billion seconds, how many years are those? How many days are those, you think? Just, you know, so what, you're going up, right? Huh? Yeah, you got, so you got the thousand, right? So a million, so, so you've got 11,000 days. Yeah, so, so it's 31 by, years. I can tell you it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's like 31 years, right? And when you go to 1 trillion, it's 31,000 years, right? So I think, you know, it's, you know, in our head, we don't really understand how much 1 trillion bacteria is. So then then you say it's 150, who cares? You know, it's, it's a huge number. So changing the system is not easy when you think about it, right? And so that's well, number one, right? It, it, can we stay there for a minute? So changing, does this system then become so robust that it sort of controls its own environment? You come in with a... With a, with a, you, so, so what do you mean when you say changing the system is so hard? Well, changing the system is so, no, it, it, it's a dynamic system. But again, for me, it helps me a lot. I'm, I'm lucky living in Texas with five acres of land, right? So I can really observe this huge, you know, you know, it's all together, right? So that's the way I see the microbiome. It's dynamic, it changes, right? The question is, we, there's probably a huge range of normal, right? And within this normal, it can change, right? In the spring, it's going to look a little bit different because you have all the flowers, right? In the fall, summer, you know, in Texas, we have the heat, right? So you're getting at the edge of, you know, you know, it's stressed out the system, right? The rain starts in the fall, but, you know, it recovers quickly again. You have, you have a, a few, this year, we have a few trees that died. But overall, I think the system is robust enough, you know, to move on. That's the way I see it. But again, it's still important that the soil is good, you know, you have the right amount of water, you have the right amount of sun, and not too much, not too little, right? I mean, it's, it's a balance, right? Biologically, it makes perfect sense. And the same way I see the, the microbiome inside of us, it, it's a dynamic system, right? But it's still a huge range of normal, is that I would say. And then, you know, if on the left or right side, you know, that could be... That could be today a coincidence, right? It could be spring versus fall, but it's still the same system, if that makes sense. But it's what diet is for me. And the second thing is for me, you know, and maybe I'm sometimes a little bit not clear or specific in my language, okay? So for me, diet is a very important part of the microbiome substrate, no doubt about it. But what I try always to say is diet is not going to change the system dramatically that it's some trees grow, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I compare this when I when I fertilize my tomato plants, I get beautiful tomatoes, right? But my five acres not going to change that much, right? So that's kind of we need to put this in perspective. That's why I think it's so important to keep the the small, you know, the small the detailed picture in place, but also the big picture, right? If the system shifts, something major happens. That diet cannot do that, right? Or shouldn't do that, you know. Or something like that. And I think that's over time we see that. We see those dietary changes, right? But that's why it's so important that we really also understand is this dietary change really a major shift or is it kind of within this normal range? And so think about this. I mean, how many things change blood glucose? Many things, right? But do you really care? In most cases, no, because you know where the reference interval is, right? And you know where the cutoffs are, you know? You know, and then you say, well, even if it goes over the cutoff for like temporarily, it's not going to be a problem. And so we need to do the same in the GI tract for the microbiome. Right? It's like, and people always say we cannot do that. And I kind of very push back against that because we can do it like any other organ system. We can define clearly where abnormal is, right? 
And then once you accept this, then, then you can with a normal like liver or kidney disease, right? Then you becomes in a very difficult sentence. I mean, that's that's a fascinating idea because on one hand, I mean, I remember once I brought into a coworker, I said, you know, here's a, a, a microbiome system. And he said, well, you know, that one's really clearly dysbiotic. And I said, well, of course, that, that pet had died, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. We can recognize death when we see it. But but it's that idea of, of describing it in a way that has meaning. And that that to me is really where your work is 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 going to be or maybe already is that's what I'd like to hear from you so so you can say okay you know if, again if you're kidney disease and you say I've got these markers I like SDMA and creatinine and BUN and and if they're all going up we've got renal disease and if maybe at this level we've got iris stage I like the iris staging you know one two three um, do you think that's possible with the microbiota is that your goal yes absolutely I think it's possible exactly if we accept, you know, it's a new field and everybody wants to make everything, describe everything at the same time, right? If you accept the same system, the kidney and liver, yes, we can do that, okay? Because we have already now, you know, when you look at the dysbiosis index and we just published this one paper, what we did is... Fascinating what, paper, by the way. Fascinating yeah, but, paper. Next, but, but, this, but this is exactly what we need to do is, you know, not just looking at small, you know, dogs before and after diet and so on. You need to put a huge number of animals in the same run, right, with different conditions. And then you can suddenly discover, yes, look at that. That's where the huge range of normal is, right? And, you know, if, if some dogs go to 1, 2, and from time to time one is at 2.5, you know, that's still maybe a range, but the majority is going to be below zero, right? And if you have dogs that are 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, right, they are way out there. And the second thing is what also... That's all upcoming because all those papers are there is, for example, we also run parallel clinical trials, right? It's not just that this is a descriptive study. We know already from other data sets, once you are a four, five, eight, nine, even fecal transplant doesn't bring you back anymore, right? Because that means it's a very severe dysbiosis, but the reason is dysbiosis has to have a reason, right? And so we, we have data that if you have antibiotic-induced dysbiosis, I can bring you back with fecal transplants. If you have chronic GI disease, I can bring you back temporarily, but usually dysbiosis comes back again. And again, that comes comes for me this 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 equivalent. If the soil is broken, you can try to plant whatever you want, right? And if the soil is broken even more, like a Sahara, it's not gonna even grow for like one or two days. And I think this this, this size effect sort of thing is crucial. So a size effect is to see, you know, how much something shifts. And if something like you said before, if those specific markers shift, you know then you know something purely start becoming abnormal. And then once you accept this, then it's easier to afterwards go back to the huge range of normal and says, okay, now maybe when it is normal, I can still optimize the system. There's nothing against it, right? It's just it's just you go going away from this putting everything into one big bucket. Yeah. No, I'm 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 following you and an optimization becomes that which is possible, right? Maybe using your analogy, which I've totally glommed onto if the if you're at the same time trying to fertilize and trying to improve the soil, your optimization is totally different than if the soil is is completely robust and the sun shines and the rain comes every exactly. week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think I, I learned a lot from just observing, you know. And I think that, that it's why why would the guts be different than any biological, you know, ecosystem on the planet, right? I mean, we are still on the same planet. That's why I think we can learn a lot from those. And I think it's it's the for me it's important that. Small details can be important, you know, but we need to understand, are we focusing on the small details? Then we need to also have more biological functioning, right? And 
for me, nutrition is, is absolutely crucial, right? It's not just ability, it's not things, and it's a combination of, you know, if, if you can change the system, improve with different nutrients, you know, you know, each of them makes a little shift combined, then you can make a stable microbiome, right? That makes we, sense. So, so we've looked a lot, you know, nutritionists in general, I personally, we've looked a lot at trying to feed the microbiota, you know, to get some bypass carbohydrate down there to, you know, they obviously need nitrogen too. And, and even trying to manipulate that with sort of gut released phytochemicals and, you know, in, in ways using the nutrition we have in our hands uh, to, to influence the microbes. But I wonder what your perspective is. Do you see, you know, your favorite, uh, if you will, your favorite way of manipulating the microbiota with nutrition or, or are, are you there? No, I'm, I'm there. But I mean, again, that's something I want to just very highlight. You know, I'm kind of from the disease side, so I'm not a classical nutritionist. So that's, that's why I like to work with you guys because, you know, you can afterwards optimize it. For me, is focusing on the markers that I believe are clearly associated with health or disease or indicate something that makes sense. And I'll give an example. Now, Clostridium difficile is a, is a very important pathogen in human medicine, right? And in veterinary medicine, it's a beautiful example because every textbook says, well, we don't really know. It could be, it couldn't be, whatever it is, right? It's, it's always like, you know, nobody's clear. That means clinicians, when the doc is diarrhea, they run a pathogen panel, the seed's positive, they're going to say, well, they're on the safe side. Let's treat with antibiotics. It's an example, right? What we have beautifully discovered now is that exactly like in humans, Clostridium difficile is closely regulated via bile acids, okay? So we have this conversion of primary to secondary bile acids, okay? And that's just been very beautifully established in human medicine. And now we see the same thing in dogs, right? You know, if you have the presence of Clostridium difficile, in 90% of cases, you also have dysbiosis and you have a lack of, of balance converting bacteria, right? You have this beautiful association. So that's what I'm saying. So, you know, and, when and you, when the, it, when, the pet has a component of that, right, too. I mean, that's a trans, trans talk with the hosts there with those bile acids, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So, what I'm saying, you, you're focusing on very conserved pathways, right? So, for me, bile acids is almost a, a highly conserved pathway like, you know, like creatinine. Does that make sense? And actually, you can, you can really, really well describe, you know, what the reference interval is. That's very consistent, okay? Now, that's an example. So, I know clearly normal abnormal. But then if you're normal, he's an example. So, if it's abnormal, then suddenly I have, you know, overgrowth pathogens and, and stuff like that. If it's normal, we also know that bilance, it's to some degree, can be a little bit toxic, Right. So it's not like it's it's again this balance between health and disease, right? So once you know it's normal, then you could potentially you know manipulate bilance. It's a little bit better. So you you couldn't change them drastically, but there are some bacteria, for example, that c- can convert the bilance in some of the isooxo, this new bilance it forms now, and then suddenly maybe you replace your your secondary bilances with less toxic ones. Does it make sense? So for me, it's this crucial understanding: Are you clearly abnormal? It's a different reason why you're abnormal. But if you're normal in health, I can take those components, right, and then maybe better engineer to to have less a little bit toxic effects on like proteins, right? This putrefaction, you know, it's it's so it's maintaining health, and that's probably the most important thing because that's also my my ultimate goal. You know why? Because we know now if you detect GI disease, if you detect dysbiosis, or at least increase dysbiosis index, right? So that's a marker. Then it's usually too late. If I can, if I can explore antibiotic usage, it's almost too late, right? And so my goal is, if the future is really to say, hey, we need to have nutrition, we need intervention, we need to make the macro stable. Like how many, 
you know, how many veterinarians, you know, diarrhea, right? Short episode of diarrhea. Owner girl comes to the vet and we give metrolysis, right? So, how, so, you know, it's an indirect, indirect consequence, but I'm saying if we can, with diet, with fiber, you know, prevent those episodes where the owner is, you know, oh my God, my dog has diarrhea now and, you know, I don't take my dogs for, because I could diarrhea to the vets because, I mean, it's self-limiting. But many owners, for them, it's important, right? And that suddenly becomes this cascade, you know, that sometimes we have a little bit to over-treat. So my point is there's plenty of things to do in nutrition. We can keep it all stable, it's stable, and so on. And, but we need to just accept the fact, right? We are dealing with a healthy gut, and we can optimize it, right? But we can all probably only optimize, you know, we're going to have to four or five screws. You know, it's not going to be one magic screw, if that makes sense, right? <laughs> and that's, I think, that's so it's a multimodal approach. And once you do that, then... And so, and we see animals, for example, that are extremely stable in this biosynthesis. You could measure them. We have a, a cat, for example, it's our fecal donor cat. We have it for two years. This cat is almost exactly the same number. It's like incredible, right? And then with other animals, they jump within normal, right? There's a huge variety. So it's also, that's also the question, you know, why on some diets, some animals keep it very stable and other ones not. So keeping something stable is probably a good way because the less you have perturbations, right? The less little chances of little episodes of diarrhea and things like that. I, yeah, let's, let's delve into that a little bit because I think there's, there's some discussion, right? The, in some hands, you know, we, you know, back to the, the human analogy, but, but, you know, you find if you keep that young child in a very, very sterile environment, they're, they're more likely to have asthma when they grow up. Um, there, there's some, and I think that's generally accepted. I, I believe it to be true. Um, and there's some sort of idea, even on a nutrition side, that maybe maybe some changes over time would be valuable and let that gut kind of find its own, you know, swinging normal in and out. Well, what do you think? No, I agree. I mean, I think I think variety is important. But I'm just maybe to, to, to special. What I'm saying is, like, for example, with animals that like like cats, right? I mean, this cat's example is, you know, well, good question, although, um, yeah. Well, I think we're probably talking about two different things here. One is, you know, the, the, allowing him to be exposed to that many different things, correct? Right, right. That's what I'm thinking. The, the cat may have some benefit of being out on those five yeah, acres, yeah, but yeah. hunting a little bit and no. feeding my good diet the rest of the time, of course. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, that's, again, that's, again, that's, it's a philosophical question because like, I, I think of my dogs, you know, my dogs, we have five acres, we have chicken, we have, you know, they roam around and, you know. From time to time, I mean, they have diarrhea, and some of them bloody diarrhea. And last time, they had diarrhea, and they had salmonella infection, right? But so my point of that is the question is, maybe take it back a little bit. So when it comes to GI disease, right? And I think nutrition is supposed to prevent, try to prevent disease. Optimize health, anyway, we always exactly, say. Exactly, yeah. And so, but, so I think maybe it's important to also highlight that we're pretty now pretty sure that GI disease is also, in many cases, like a little damage model, Right. I think damage model means that, so in human medicine, for example, acute gastroenteritis. So an acute gastroenteritis where you are two days in the bathroom and then you forget about it, you know, you laugh it off. And then a few months later, you have start becoming chronic GI sites. And the reason for that is simple things like, you know, uh, molecular mimicking, you know, so the toxins of E. coli that you cannot prevent really because they're everywhere, right? They suddenly your immune system cross reacts with them, or maybe you had a little scar tissue. Like, look at your skin. How much scar tissue do we have on our skin? I don't want to talk about it. 
exactly. <laughs> but in the gut, it's probably the same thing, right? But then in the gut, there could be some motility changes, bacteria attached, and so on and so on. So we know, for example, now from two studies, parvovirosis, roughly 40 to 50% of all dogs that survive parvovirosis are going to have an increased risk for GI disease later on. Okay? Same thing with dogs with acute hemorrhage that syndrome, right? Also 27% of them have it, right? Um, now we also know antibiotics. You know, there's a new study from Greece came out looking at kittens. So when they kittens receive antibiotics early in life, they were more likely to have diarrhea. So my point of that is, is no, variety is good to be exposed, but you need, but the, the risk is always there. It's almost impossible to prevent, you know, because that's what life is about, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's and probably, so that, yeah, it's part of life. Why should we get too hard? Exactly. But I'm saying so, but I think those are the some, sometimes the simple explanations why GI disease happens late in life. You know, it makes sense. It's in most cases damage model. And then you have genetics as ability, you know, on top of that. But even in humans, genetics plays a minor role compared to, you know, something else. And so I'm saying is that it's so, so what you say, what I said before is it's good to have diet, variety, allergies, and so on. But ideally, you have a macro that is stable, right? To prevent those little, those little, you know, exposures to gastroenteritis, which is self-limiting, doesn't have to be treated, you know, because it goes away. But it can those little micro damages that potentially could be a risk factor, you know, for the yeah. Patients. No, so, I get it. So, that, yeah. so if I can summarize what you're saying, you're saying you want a quality diet, and you want that all the time, and you want a diet that that benefits the microbiota, and and that probably means. Uh, for you, some some uh, carbohydrate that's coming into the lower gut, and and anything else. I mean, what what else might? As I'm a nutritionist, I want to feed that microbiota as well as the pet. That's 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 the late in life revelation. Uh, what what do I do? Yeah, no, I think when you start thinking about also the core microbiome, and I think there's also like a lot of discussion. What is a core microbiome and so on? So for me, a core microbiome makes sense because every biological system is going to have specific functions. You know, that's probably going to define the majority, right? And so we know that the core microbiome are bacterial microsimilonones, right, who converts bile acids. And we have other like fecali bacterium, very well established from human medicine, right? And all that's a, a, a bacterium that does end up of the components. Many of them respond to fiber, right? So that's why fiber is a good one, right? Here, probably, maybe you could later, you know, modulate it. Maybe that's why you say, okay, dogs with low fecali bacteria, maybe they need a little more fiber. You know, those are the small things we can figure out in the future, right? But the principle is the very now, I think, established pathways, you know, of functions. And maybe, you know, some bacteria are clearly linked to a function. Some other functions, many bacteria can do, if that makes sense. But we need to identify those important functions like shortchain fatty acids. Also, I think too much is probably not good either. It's the balance, right, if that makes sense. And so that's why you optimize, optimize, you know, optimize this. And realistically, we need to also, we cannot make a magic out of nowhere, right? But I think it's maybe that's where the precision medicine is going to come in, you know. Those dogs respond a little bit better to this protein, you know. That's where maybe the future is. But the, the realistic approach is that, you know, that in the end, you it's it's probably not being a big magic, right? It's it's the it's the right protein source, it's the right fiber source, and so on. And maybe that's where a little bit uh, variance comes. Not every animal is going to respond to the same fiber. So fiber blends makes perfect sense to me, and things like that, right? Yeah. Oh, that that's great, and 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 I think uh, very clear insight. You know, I wonder if we could talk about a couple other things. This is fascinating to me. Thank you for for sort of showing it to us. But but you've talked kind of about the 
the probiotics and, and, and then this term, I don't know if you use it as much, but I sure do the postbiotics. But you said, well, of course, if you have too much volatile fatty acids, you have diarrhea. Right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's just clear. You can go over the top, but I sort of like butyrate, you know. So, so I wonder if you could talk about kind of both ends of the microbiome, what, what we might do. Um, we kind of talked about feeding, but what we might do with probiotics to establish it and maybe what are those postbiotic markers that you might be following in this in this desire to you know get optimized nutrition? Yeah, no. So I mean, it is, yeah, it's pretty much a follow up what I just said before, right? That's that there are certain pathways, kind of that if we know they're important, and that's why where they cross reactive the immune system or prevent pathogens, right? And so if we be able to optimize them better. You know, that they are not on the bad side in this right range. You know, I think that's probably the biggest, biggest uh, rewards for the investment, if that makes sense, because that makes sense. And so, again, it's, it's again, the short-term fatty acids, you know, it's against the bile acids. The bile acids are a very regulated pathway, but there's many different new isoforms that we identified that potentially could be a little bit of less toxic and so on. And then the probiotics, obviously. And the probiotics, again, it's always about expectation, right? We need to understand a probiotic can do only limited amounts in the guts, right? It's just, it's just a fact. I mean, because think about, again, if you have trillions of bacteria and you're giving, you know, some billions, it's still a very small amount and so on. And so, again, that's why it's so crucial to understand, is this probiotic doing a clear immune stimulation? Does it attach to the small intestine? Can it help with some of those pathways, right? With digestion or items. So, so we need to be really very clear. For me, focusing sometimes on the, on the big pathway probably is going to explain 70, 80%. That makes sense. And the question is, can we optimize that, right? With probiotics and so on. The postbiotic concept, I think it's, a, it's the absolutely correct concept. It's just that I'm coming again from the microbiome. So I'm not in the regulation. I think what you guys, what the nutrition world means with postbiotics are a little different now than what I understand for me. For me, a postbiotic is anything that somehow got changed by the Bacat's microbiota. That makes sense. That's classic, yeah. But, exactly. But I think the nutrition is that if you actually have a fermentation problem, but it's the same principle. It's, again, identifying the major, major metabolites in those. And, and in the end, I really think we are almost, not almost there. I mean, you need to go more, more into metabolomics, right? Because at the moment, everybody looks at the sequencing back and forth, but it doesn't necessarily change that there are some metabolites that we may or may not know. And maybe sometimes we have to look outside the guts. And I'll give an example. Like, you know, like epilepsy. We have now probably three or four different studies that we looked at epilepsy of dogs. And guess what? In every single study, we didn't find any dysbiosis. Okay? However, if you give a fecal transplant to dogs with epilepsy, suddenly you see increases of GABA in the urine. Okay? So there's still something happening that we cannot really measure. So I think we need to expand a little bit of our horizon, you know, and looking at those metabolites also in serum and, and, and urine and so on, because they're clearly associated with the microbiome, but it's, it's, it's something that we have to expand and so on. Wow, and that's a really expensive study, isn't it? So if you want to do the microbiota, the, the metabolome of the, of the gut and the plasma serum, whatever, and the urine, suddenly... Um, you know, you go to that with uh, grant proposals. But that's why I think it's what's, what is important. It's, it doesn't have to be in every nutrition study. I think my point is that we need to kind of, in, in research studies, for, try to identify some of those other pathways, if that makes sense. And once you have those, then you can use targeted assays, right? Targeted assays, and it becomes much, much cheaper. 
And I think we know, like you, you like P-Cresol, sulfate, right? You come yes, I mean, I watch it all the time, right? That's exactly. But you'd be surprised that we also find them altered in chronic GI disease in cats already. Okay. And again, coming back to this concept, it's, it's all interrelated. So all coming back to the concept, we don't have to reinvent the wheel in every single study. You know, why don't we just do targeted assays, you know, and identify what does change those, you know? Because for me, biology is, if you focus on the, on the major pathways, you're going to have a higher success. And so P-Cresol, Inuxosulfenos are all new markers, but we know they're important, right? And so they can also be potentially be part, part of nutrition studies, right? How do they change, if they change at all? And so yeah, no, that's fascinating. I, I can guarantee you, I can change them. Um, it's a question, isn't it? That, that, that interplay of all those systems, it's striking. And it's part of the fun. It is, yeah. But I'm saying uh, we do this a lot now with target assays. So when we started the first metabolomic study, we found like 1,000 metabolites. But it really went down the list of the most common pathways. And it started with the palisade pathway. And we still work for 10 years now on it. And the story gets better and better. You know, suddenly you can clearly identify the, you know, the, you know where normal is, where identify here known is. You know, it's a perfect correlation. If it's there, you have biased conversion. It's not there now. So all I'm just saying is sometimes focusing on the major pathways and trying to answer all those questions brings us already a lot forward. If you try to look at everything at the same time, you get lost in the details. So that's kind of my approach at the moment. Well, you've so had... Been- Great success with it, Dr. Sokodowski. Yeah. And I think that's why so target assays is really, really helpful. It takes a lot of this noise out of, you know, this, 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 you know, big data sets that often are not reproducible, not by themselves. It's just because the methods, right? So, you know, you have batch effects and things like that, and that really creates the noise. So we need to do the same thing like in, in, in kidney disease. You don't need to have a target assay, and then suddenly you can see what really changes and how much does it change meaningful. Well, absolutely. And of course, I, I see this vision that you're speaking of, like you use these type of response variables for a different uh, study. So you may have a study, fascinating study, right, where you're doing this large amount of analytes in many different places and, and you're trying to, to, to get that, here's the forest, and then suddenly you start saying, but here's, here's the, the one analyte or the five analytes because, you know, when, when I started in research sciences, you know, if I knew insulin and growth hormone and lean body mass and blood glucose and, you know, I'd maybe 10. It's like if I knew them, I thought I'd had everything. And then suddenly the world blows up and, and there's so much to measure. So maybe I need to collapse yes, back a little bit. No, I agree. And I think that is probably also the big difference. That's same thing for me. Huh? I'm coming from a diagnostic lab, right? I know how difficult it is to keep one analyte stable for many years. It's not easy. Even even very common assays that we measure in clinical practice every day, whose assay value, and I th- and I think, but we also know, like in liver disease, right? If you measure f- a few enzymes, you can get a good picture where you are, right? Yeah. If that makes sense, right? And I think the microbiome came came from the other side. Suddenly, you know, everything was being able to measure in one big run, and you know, it, it became its own field that we have to r- measure everything in one run, and not realizing that in the end. We're actually having quite a lot of noise because of badge effects and things like that. So I think that is really, I think, a challenge. And for example, when you read papers in the background space, there's no validation. Nobody ever shows how reproducibility, right? Nobody actually uses uh, qPCR or anything else to validate your findings, you know? In any other fields, 
you need to actually show with Eliza or with something, whatever your marker is, that actually is the same, right? It doesn't exist in the macro space. And I think that is, uh, creates a lot of noise. So it's a great discovery tool. And in the end, you probably need to have both new discovery. But if you afterwards have an asset that you can compare across many, many, many studies, you'd be surprised how actually reproducible it is. And you can really find the, the, the big picture and the major players. And so I think that is what we need to probably move forward. Really fascinating. Thank you. You know, I have a couple other questions. I hope you have time to, to sort of kick around with me. One is just in general, you know, you've been very successful and your lab has been successful. I think I would like to hear, and many listeners might like to hear, what you look for in individuals and say, you know, this is someone I'd like to work with, maybe someone I'd like on my team. What, what, what do you do to sort of evaluate that? Honestly, I, I can be actually making fun about me because I usually, when somebody comes to me and they say, I'm interested, I'm curious, that's almost like a, okay, you can work for me. <laughs> so <laughs> many, many other have, colleagues have, have this Exactly, they have interviews and so on. But I think it's curiosity, you know, it's curiosity, but it's also like in our lab, we, we work so many different projects all over, you know, with, we collaborate with everybody in the world. And that's, that's really useful for us because we learn the perspectives. That's important perspective all the way from a nutrition study all the way to an antibiotic study you can kind of get the feeling what what's the magnitude of a change and, and so on and so my i want people who are really you know enthusiastic they're curious and they're not afraid to help with many different projects and i'm sure many can do that some students cannot do that you know they are kind of overwhelmed a little bit with too many projects and so on but we have a Honestly, we have also a very big infrastructure our lab is now eight faculties you know we have a huge component so we have a big support team too. That also helps. So it's not like, so everybody, you know, finds their own niche in our lab and that's great. Another thing we have now, two pathologists, we have internal medicine specialists, we have monotritionists, you know, we have microbiome people. So just bouncing all of this off each other helps a lot because everybody comes from a different perspective, right? And we kind of expanding our own horizon. And so working in a big network really helps a lot. I think that is really, that is a thing with helping and be collaborative. That's that's awesome. Do you thank you for that? And that that sure makes sense. If that's how you succeed, how would you fail in your system? What what's the way that just says no? This isn't working. Is is that a, something you can talk about? Well, I think we had we had we have many students who went through our lab. If that's what the question is about, how some students succeed. Most of our students succeeded. Uh, a few did not, but they had a very, very, they wanted to get lost in the detail. I think that is, I think, with, you know, coming back to the detail, if you get lost in the detail, then you fail in the system, I believe, because not really failing. I mean, you're still going to have a decent career. Yeah, get a degree. No, I understand. Exactly. But I think getting lost in the detail is important, you know, but I think you need to learn to look at the both picture. And so there are some students, we have some people who just get lost in the detail and they don't, they're afraid that, oh my God, I'm making a mistake, right? I don't see the big picture. And like, you know, in every new field, you just have to be sometimes, you know, if all the data matches, right? Sometimes you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes maybe I wrong, make the wrong conclusion. But hopefully it's really just 10% of it. It's not that I'm completely wrong, right? But sometimes going to find something. And, and a good example was with the dysbiosis index, I must tell you, because in the beginning, you know, I was surprised. Surprise too, you know, because it's in the head that every dog has dysbiosis and you have chronic GI disease, right? But it's not the case. You know, we know now it's it's very clearly we can show this with sequencing and so on. 
And the second thing is, is why did not it resolve? You know, it's dysbiosis. Shouldn't you treat it and it should come back, right? So it doesn't mean that I was wrong. My expectation was a little bit wrong, if that makes sense, right? But the good news is, if you're open enough, take a step back, look at that data all together, then you're realizing the data is still correct, right? It was just my interpretation. Actually, not in mine. It's the field, the field, like antibiotics, right? And I'm saying, like antibiotics, a beautiful example. And so you just have to be saying, wow, it makes sense. And you look at it from different angles. I'm not relying on one single study. I'm relying on a lot of different things that happen around us, right? And some of them may not be published yet, though it's like this. But it's this, it's this wealth. And you have to just be sometimes saying, okay, admit, okay, the data is correct. It doesn't mean the data is wrong. It's just the way we made interpret- our expectations was wrong. And that is kind of need to be able to change. And then it's not a problem. Oh, it's so fascinating. I, I, I wish I could remember the quote, some Nobel laureate said, you know, the way to f- advance is by ignoring some details. And, and <laughs> so that, that, you know, you gotta, you gotta see that definite large picture somehow. Yeah, you have to observe a lot of different things and they're slowly going to come together and, you know, also being patient because it also takes a long time to, to, you know, to see that everything comes together. Now we're seeing it slowly coming together. And again, also not being afraid is to say, well, sorry, we're never going to be a good predictors for GI disease, if that makes sense, right? Because it's an overlapping system. It's a complex system and so on. But it's also not so complex that you should not use it, right? But you still, it's still helpful to look at it this way, accept it, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. So knowing knowing the space that you're trying to dwell in, that, that you're not saying, I have all the answers, but I have these specific facets that I can watch and, 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 and they're of benefit. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, what do you think if, if you had someone out there and said, you know, I would like to read more about this. I, I, I you know, you, I don't know how many, how many publications a year, Dr. Sokodowski. I, I get lost. I'm not reading everything that you are an author on. I try and watch your work. But, but what would you say? Someone saying, I'd like to read more about this. What would you recommend? Well, the truth of the matter is, I'll be honest, that at the moment, you know, not one single paper you know, kind of would be able to summarize this. And, and again, this is exactly where I come from, is that we are now there with things come together. I think, you know, I speak a lot with clinicians, for example. I, I work a lot with clinicians, right? And so we see how does fit what we're doing now really also in the clinical expectations. So, so we're not independent of that. And now I think we have a nice framework. You know, we have also the same framework with some people who really look into this and say, we need to also change GI disease classifications, right? This classical food responsive, antibiotic responsive, cell responsive. It's like a, a drawer that is wrong, right? So I think now it comes together. And I think now over the next, you know, hopefully six months, one year, we can feel much stronger to write review articles, okay? That we can actually say, exactly, that actually can say why, you know, why this comes together if that makes sense. So again, that's what I'm saying before. We can you have to be patient and not afraid to still put information out there, kind of lecture a little bit, even if it's a story is not, you know, it comes together if that makes sense. And so we've got to watch for those. The other thing is probably there's plenty of, you know, microbiome forums, webinars available and so on. We're going to have, you know, for in, this, in the fall we have one and we're going to, what we try to do is really also bring clinicians into this, right? So, you know, that's not, that is a critical sense of it. And, it's, and so I think we developed this story, right? And it's going to happen. <laughs> the story is pretty clear now. We just, we just have to now write everything around it, if that makes sense. And it takes some time. 
Well, that's very exciting. I, I think you're at that that space where, you know, so many research scientists would wish to be, where you, you can start saying, I can pull these threads together to make a very woven fabric. I don't know, maybe my metaphor dies, but but it, it's exciting. Exactly. No, I'm excited too, and it took 25 years. And, you know, it's, for me, like a, as a maybe the final story, that <laughs> the fifth chapter of my PhD, that was in 2005, never got published, okay? And here's a funny story, because back then, it was, again, we wanted to show how beneficial antibiotics are, right? So we gave beetle dogs tylosin. And here, look what's what happens. Bilacids altered in, into the range where it's abnormal, you know? Markers of GI disease went abnormal and so on. And so everybody said it's impossible, because we know that antibiotics do little something of a benefit, Right. Now, after 20 years, the data is exactly the same what we see now. We see on antibiotics, bilacid, this metabolism, things like that. It was just 20 years ago, <laughs> my mentors had a different expectation. So they were good mentors, don't get me wrong. It wasn't that I had to fight against them, but they, the whole field had the wrong expectations. And so, you know, when you, but as I said before, the data is always the data. You observe it over time and you're building a story. And I'm in a lucky position. I mean, I have a great support team here at the GI lab. I mean, I could never have done it without a lot, right? a great faculty team. We have this collaborative spirit. We collaborate many researchers all over the world so we can have access to samples that nobody else could recreate, if that makes sense, because we're helping them analyzing samples and so on. And, you know, that really helps move the field forward as a big group of people together. But so to, to finalize it, you know, that's why we I'm very confident that you know, the data is correct. We just, we're just improving the story. Well, the understanding gets deeper and deeper, doesn't it? And and to a certain degree, science is a story. You know, when I write a paper anymore, I I, I think, well, what is this story? You know, what is this? The the, the data is still true, but I but I have to they have to wrap it with some information, or the the bones just aren't that interesting. So so I understand. Well, this has been. Very exciting, and I, I really, really enjoy hearing your expertise. And, 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 you know, again, thank you for the work you've done. I think you're, you're in a tremendous leadership position in this microbiota area. Many of us follow what's coming out of your, your laboratory, so it's, it's really excellent. I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. I had fun. Thank you.